You are now listening to the September 11th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have The Seven Signs, A Sermon, and The God of Abraham. First, let's begin with The Seven Signs. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with The Seven Signs. So far, we have shared six out of the seven signs that Jesus showed us. The first sign involved turning water into wine. The second sign was the healing of the son of a royal official from Capernaum. Jesus did the healing remotely without going to Capernaum. The third sign occurred by the Pool of Bethesda. It entailed the healing of a man who had been sick for 38 years. The fourth sign was the feeding of 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. It happened in the region of Bethsaida. The fifth sign happened with Jesus on the water, walking toward the boat his disciples were on. The disciples were going to Capernaum right after the sign of the feeding of 5,000. And the sixth sign was about a man who had been born blind and how Jesus opened his eyes. Through these signs, Jesus demonstrated to us that he is the Son of God and the Christ. When we look at these six signs closely, we see that a limited number of people were given the opportunity to witness them. These signs were revealed to a few select people or to those that already followed Jesus. In the first sign at the wedding in Cana, only Jesus' disciples and the servants who brought the water to the banquet witnessed the sign. In the second sign of the healing of the son of a royal official from Capernaum, only Jesus' disciples and the royal official witnessed the sign. Even in the sign of the healing of the man who had been sick for 38 years, only Jesus' disciples and the sick man witnessed the sign. In the sign of the feeding of 5,000, 5,000 men might have witnessed the sign, but they were all followers of Jesus that came to listen to him. In the sign of walking on the water, only Jesus' disciples witnessed this sign. And in the last sign of the healing of a man who was born blind, only the blind man was privy to what happened. However, the seventh sign we are going to share now involves a special miracle that Jesus showed to many people openly, whether they believed in him or not. It is the sign of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. In John chapter 11, we see the death of Lazarus. He was the brother of Mary and her sister Martha. They lived in Bethany, not too far from Jerusalem. When their brother Lazarus became very sick and was about to die, Mary and Martha sent an urgent message to Jesus to come and help Lazarus. Strangely, however, though he loved them a lot, Jesus did not hurry his way to see them. If he was busy, Based on what we saw before in the second sign, Jesus could have easily healed Lazarus without actually going there. As if nonchalantly, 
Jesus remained two more days where he was without going to see the sick Lazarus, as stated in John chapter 11, verse 6. How would you explain this uncharacteristic response from Jesus? According to chapter 11, verse 4, Lazarus' sickness was not to end in death, but was a tool for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified by it. As we said earlier, this sign is different from all the other signs as Jesus showed this sign to many people, whether they believed in him or not. If we read John chapter 11, some people doubted Jesus when Jesus was about to resurrect Lazarus. They said, Couldn't he, who opened the eyes of the blind man, have kept Lazarus from dying? Afterwards, some of them went to report to the Pharisees what Jesus did and how he brought Lazarus back to life. Then, we are left to wonder, unlike the other signs, why Jesus performed this particular sign of the resurrection of Lazarus openly, showing it even to those who did not believe in him. The answer comes down to what Jesus said some time ago when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to see him. In Matthew chapter 16, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test Jesus. They deliberately posed a difficult and decisive demand. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. In response, Jesus rebuked them by saying, How is it that they could not discern the sign of the times when they could discern the weather by the appearance of the sky? He proceeded to tell them in Matthew chapter 16, verse 4, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. After that, he left them and went away. The reason these people demanded from Jesus the signs from heaven was not to believe in him, but to test him. Jesus did not have any reason to show signs from heaven to those who did not want to believe in him. Jesus did not have any reason to prove who he is to them. Jesus showed signs to those that would know who he is and come to believe in him through these signs. To people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who refused to believe in him, Jesus said he would show one sign the sign of Jonah. As some of the listeners might already know, Jonah was a prophet from the Old Testament. He disobeyed God's command to go to Nineveh and deliver them God's warning against that city. However, in disobedience, he fled to Tarshish instead. Subsequently, the ship he was on met a severe storm and he was then thrown into the sea. God then prepared a great fish to swallow him and remained in the fish's stomach for three days. Quite often, we might think Jonah was alive in the fish's stomach because the fish eventually threw him up alive onto the dry land. However, Jonah died in the fish's stomach. If we read Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2, we see that he was crying out from the stomach of Sheol where the dead goes to. That is what Jesus was referring to in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, as he made reference to the sign of Jonah and told them that the Son of Man would be in the heart of the earth. 
as Jonah died in the fish's stomach and resurrected, Jesus also resurrected, all on God's command. This was the sign that Jesus told them that he would show, regardless of whether they believed in him or not. And Jesus showed this sign through two separate occasions. The first one was the sign of Jonah captured in the resurrection of Lazarus. We began sharing today. And the second one is the sign of Jonah demonstrated through Jesus' own death and resurrection. This was the reason Jesus showed the sign of the resurrection of Lazarus openly in public, unlike the other signs that had come before. What do you think Jesus wants us to get from the sign of the death and resurrection of Lazarus? We will consider that in the next episode of Signs of Jesus. This concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week.
goodness faileth never Good shepherd may I sing your praise Within your house forever Within your house forever Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vinson of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, Everything Will Not Always Be the Same. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. The Bible says that a great change is coming to the universe. And it's easy to to forget that, to overlook that, to think about other things than that great day that the scriptures everywhere are consistently promising us. It's easy to think that the world is going to kind of just keep bumping along in the way that it always has. But we're back in our Remember This series in 2 Peter 3, 1-7, where Peter is actually shifting gears in the letter. And he's trying to stir up or shaken or shake us, awaken us, Christians, by way of reminding the Christians he spoke to of the fiery end that awaits the false teachers that he's been identifying in chapter 2. You'll remember that these are false teachers who he has shown. Uh, They are doing a couple of things in their teaching. One is they're denying the return of Christ. And then second, not only are they denying that return of Christ, uh, but we're told that as a result, they are saying it doesn't really matter how you live today. So if there's no last day, then live it up every day. Well, Peter as he's facing death, he writes this letter and he he wants to make sure that Christians remember to follow the way of Christ. That's the right way. That's the way that gets you home to live with the Father forever. He doesn't want you to get diverted from the path. He says there's a great coming day of the Lord that you need to be ready for. Now, as we look at chapter 3, you'll notice in verse 1, he begins by speaking to the beloved. And I think that that marks that he is beginning a new section in Second Peter. As I said before, it signals a kind of new movement in this letter where Peter is addressing his listeners as beloved again and again. You can notice in verse 1, 8, 14, and 17, he continues to address the beloved. He's speaking about the false teachers but he's speaking to Christians. And I think that's important to know that though he is speaking about the false teachers, he says, what I'm saying is important for you to hear as the beloved of God. Now, the only other place that Peter uses this word beloved is in 2 Peter 1.17, where God the Father declared Jesus to be his beloved son. These Christians, they they are beloved. They love one another because they are first loved by God in Christ. That's good news, isn't it? God loves them. God loves us who are in Christ. We are the beloved of God and we love one another. Christian, be encouraged that you're loved by God. Even before we talk about the wrath that's coming, we need to be reminded that we are not like them. We are those who are loved by God. He has a future and a hope for us. But here, Peter sees reminding Christians of the fiery judgment of God on that last day is is good for those who are loved by God. It's good for them to be reminded of that day of judgment. That's what leaving Christ to follow scoffers would lead to. Perishing, not good. So our big idea this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. You can write this down. It's that 
Hiding and abiding in Christ is the only way to escape God's fiery judgment on the last day. Now that's not direct, but it's implicit. We're going to see that later as we look at this in a Christ-centered kind of way. But first, notice that Peter says we need the Bible to awaken us to a sincere mind in verses 1 and 2. Here's what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up to sincere mind by way of reminder. So notice first here, he is waking them up to a pure mind. A pure mind. Now, as he reminds us that he's writing his second letter, you have to ask, well, what was the first letter? Some have said that we, we lost the first letter. Uh, others have looked at this and said, well, I... I think that Second Peter is actually a combination of a number of letters, and First Peter is the first, I mean, uh, chapter one is the first, the first letter he's speaking of. It was later combined and edited to include chapter three, and so chapter three is really just referring to one as a letter that he was speaking of. But I, I go with the majority of scholars here, and I'm just going to move on from here saying that I think First Peter is the first letter. And again, notice Peter writes this letter as the other one to stir up Christians and he's doing this to shake or rouse them. Kind of like you would do to awaken someone who's in a, a deep sleep. He's, he's saying you need to shake or stir them to cause them to, to be aware of what's going on. In fact, Mark uses the same word in Mark 4 as he's describing the way that the disciples fearfully woke up Jesus when they were in the midst of that great storm. They awoke him. Now, what does he want them to be woke to, though? Well, it's a sincere mind. Notice he says that clearly. See, Peter wants to awaken them to a, a pure, unmixed, alloy-less, undivided thinking that is honest, straightforward, and true. But did you catch what Peter's saying here? He's saying, beloved Christians, don't throttle on sincerity of mind. Did you hear that? Christians, loved by God, we do not throttle on sincerity of mind. In other words, if you just don't do anything, if you don't do anything spiritually, you're not just going to remain pure of mind. There's a, a kind of way in which spiritual entropy kicks in when we are still, when we are complacent, when we are not spiritually active, in which we begin to start to slowly become impure in mind, even as a new creation, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, living with the apostles who witnessed the transfiguration, these Christians still needed to be both shaken and stirred into a sincere mind. Don't you think that you need to too? I think I do. I need to be reminded. I know so experientially. Why? Well, their problem was... Clearly false teachers, living in a corrupt world, fighting sin. All of that meant that each of them needed mental stirring for their spiritual good. Now, because we don't throttle in sincerity of mind either, our minds, we need to know, are constantly being bombarded with an unceasing flow of images and experiences that can distract us subtly from confidence 
in the gospel and Christ, the Christ of the gospel. So how do we stir up a, a sincere mind? How do you do that? How do you shake yourself to sleep? What is the spiritual way to stick your, your head outside of the window as you're driving 80 miles, oh, 75, 70, down, down the road and trying to stay awake? Well, Peter tells us. Peter tells us that it's with the reminder in verse 2 that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he says, here's how you, you do it. You remember what the Bible says about obeying Jesus. Now, Peter appealed to the Old Testament prophets before as they predict Christ's last day judgment. And his personal experience, Peter told us about how he heard God's voice from heaven at the transfiguration. He said that this is how we know that our theology of the last days is trustworthy. We received it from God. That's what, what he says in chapter 1. But here again, Peter is pointing to the Old Testament prophets. He says they are a reliable testimony to Christ's return. So look at the Old Testament prophets and what they said about Jesus coming back. But also, did you notice that he adds the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles? See, Peter seems to use the singular, the commandment, to identify the moral requirements that are placed on believers by Christ. He's just He's lumping them together into the commandment, the word that is from Christ. And much, be, much could be said here. But I want to make a few comments on these verses before we move on. First, Peter believes Christians need the Old and New Testament to stir them up to a sincere mind. Did you notice that? What do you need to stir up? You need your Old Testament, you need your New Testament, you need a whole Bible. Don't follow preachers and teachers who say you don't need the Old Testament. As Alistair Begg says, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. But also, second, did you catch that Jesus requires obedience from his people? See, grace doesn't exempt us from obedience. There is a, a kind of form of professed Christianity that says that because we are under the grace of Jesus Christ, that we no longer need to obey him, as though obedience is an optional amenity to Christianity. But Jesus is Lord. And you say, well, what is he Lord of? Everything. And you're like, in my life, not just your life. Everything in heaven, the spiritual realm, and on earth. He is completely, indubitably sovereign. We must obey him. And third, did you catch what the apostles speak with the authority of Christ? The apostles, they are, they are claiming here, Peter, as an apostle, saying, I speak in such a way that I'm delivering you the mail of Jesus Christ. So that what you receive from me is from him. See, some take this in a very strange way. Some of you might have a, a red-letter Bible this morning. Anybody have a red-letter Bible? It's okay. Like, you don't have to tell anybody. It's not a bad thing. But it could be. It could be a bad thing because... It could be that as you're looking at your Bible and you're seeing the red letters, there are some red-letter Christians who say either A, the red letters have more authority than the black letters, or I only listen to the red letters and the other letters are not important. And I would say that what Jesus would say is, you're not reading the red letters right. It's all from me. All scripture is inspired by God. The words that you receive from the apostles and the prophets, 
They are fully God's word, and all of us, all of it must be understood in light of who Christ is today and what he has done and what he has accomplished. So we don't need to be red-letter Bible Christians. We need to receive the whole word. Now, let me ask you a question as you look to this. Doesn't this seem to say that we as Christians need a steady diet of the whole Bible to stir our minds up and awaken us regularly to sincerity because we can forget God's word. Doesn't it seem like that's pretty clear? Like that's what he's saying. That we get distracted by life and we get caught up in sin and we forget God's word and we need regular reminders. Well, let me ask you a question just to ask yourself this morning. You don't have to say this out loud. It might get weird if everybody's talking to themselves, but here's a question to ask internally, okay? Do you stir yourself up enough to a sincere mind? Are you doing it enough? Are you, are you doing it at all? Are you not reading your Bible all week and hoping that you come in on Sunday morning and hear the preaching of the Word and that something magical will happen that has not happened all during the week? Who helps you get stirred up? When you find your mind growing drowsy towards living wholeheartedly for Christ, where are you turning? Do you turn to the Bible and the means of grace that the Bible commends to to help you obey Christ? Well, this would be a great time just to pray and ask God to use His Word this morning to stir you afresh, to awaken you to a sincere mind that changes you, not just for today, but for the day after day that comes as you leave from this place. Second, Peter says, No, the Bible warns of scoffers denying Jesus' return in the last days. No, the Bible, one of the ways that he prepares people for that last day is this warning that we've seen throughout history in the scriptures that there would be scoffers on the last day. Don't be surprised by him. Now I take this knowing here to signal the reason Christians need repetitive remembrance of what the Bible says about Christ coming and obeying him in verse 3. See, the, the Bible warns that scoffers signaled the last day. Peter clearly connects mocking the return of Jesus with a, a shady moral life in, the, in this verse. Notice in verse 3 he says, Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, here's what they should know. First of all, if properly stirred by the Scriptures. You know this first of all, if properly stirred by the Scriptures. The Bible and Jesus both warned that scoffers living immoral lives would come more and more as the last day approached. And they would be there during the last days that would culminate in the last day. See, scoffers, they, they don't merely debate the truth. That's not their style. It's not just to disagree with it. No, these scoffers, that they go a step further. They mock, belittle, and deride the truth. They follow their sinful desires rather than the will of God. That's what it means when it says they follow their own simple desires. They're not following the way of Christ. They're following their wants rather than Christ's wants. And their way leads to perishing, just like the scoffers of the Old Testament. Well, the Christian way of life, it leads somewhere different, doesn't it? It leads to eternal life and joy at the right hand of the Father. See, these scoffers receive a good bit of attention in the Bible. If, if you're thinking about what does the Bible have to say about scoffers, it's not good. In Matthew 24, 5, Jesus warned of these kinds of people. He says, many will come in my name in the last days. And they will claim, I am the Christ, and I, 
and, and they will deceive many. And even though Peter says scoffers will come in this verse, I believe like before, what he's saying is, we are seeing the fulfillment of what's been promised in the past. The future is here. The future is now. We are in the last days. It's evidenced by the scoffers who are around us and who will be around us. See, here we, we find that these scoffers are telling us the last days have arrived. Uh, similarly, 1 John 2.18 says, it is not just that the last day has arrived, but the last hour. He says, as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists are here. Now, Pentecost and Acts 2 mark the beginning of the prophesied last days that are unfolding. But Peter wants us to read verse 4. In light of this description of these false teachers as scoffers. So he's going to give us the, the question that they're asking. But he wants us to understand it is not a kind of question of curiosity or question seeking learning. It is a mocking question. So notice, scoffers here, they mock the return of Christ because of past experience in verse 4. Now to be clear, Peter told us in 2.18-22 that these scoffers claim to follow the faith. But here they mock the specific teaching of the faith, the return of Christ on the last day to judge the living and the dead. Now he says, verse 4, they will say, Where's the promise of his coming? Now, this was likely taking place just two-ish decades after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. But here they are mocking this promised return of Jesus. They got tired of waiting just two decades in. Now, you'll notice that word for coming... In the Greek, it comes from parousia, a word for the coming of Christ on the last day. Now hang with me. Asking questions about the last day or eschatology, it's not bad in and of itself. That's not what Peter's saying. It's a good thing to, to ask questions. It's a bad thing to try to speculate in ways that cause divisions. But these scoffers, they are asking questions to actually mock the idea that Jesus is coming back bodily to set things right. He says, they say, and this kind of explains what they were saying, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, uh, some have taken fathers here to speak of the first generation of Christians, including the apostles. It's kind of fathers. But what's interesting, and I think helpful to understand what he's talking about, is that in the New Testament, we never see fathers used in that way. It's always used to talk about the patriarchs of the faith, like Abraham and Isaac, and, and that seems to be what he's talking about when he speaks of looking back to, they look back to these fathers, those fathers of the faith, and the scoffers seem to have taught that since the days of these patriarchs, history has just kind of been bumping along without God's intervention. Like, it just keeps on happening the same way, day after day. It's a little bit like Groundhog's Day, like, you know, it's like, oh, same day again. They mock the idea of Jesus intervening in the future with divine justice. Uh, to me, this sounds a little bit like a, a deistic kind of view of God as a, a great watchmaker who created creation sort of as a watch and then just stepped back and let it just kind of tick by itself, not intervening or interceding to act within it. Interestingly, during Peter's day, Epicureans 
denied providence or any notion of a knowable God acting in or on the universe. I don't think that's what's being pointed to here, but it seems something like that. They're denying that, that God intervenes, that he is going to actually change or bring justice or actually bring about a change in the way that the universe operates. I kind of like this word that he uses for death, though. Did you notice the fathers fell asleep? It's an interesting word. It's a metaphor for death. But as I was reading, I found that one commentator, Doug Moo, was speaking of this, and he noted that this metaphor for death seems to be only reserved for believers who die. That it doesn't signal a kind of soul sleep when Christians die, but seems to to amplify the notion that death is temporary for those who die in Christ. This reminds me of a song, a hymn by H.A. Caesar Milan, It Is Not Death to Die. It Is Not Death to Die. A beautiful song if you haven't heard it. Friends, that's a song that only Christians can sing with sincerity of mind. Only the pure heart of a Christian can sing that it is not death to die. Notice here, though, he gives three evidences, Peter does, that God does intervene. That's our third point. He, he brings three evidences of God's intervention. Three, three evidences that the scoffers overlooked in verses 5 to 7. Uh, you'll notice the word that he uses in verse 5 for deliberately is an interesting word. It can also mean maintain. The NASB translate verse 5 this way, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That has a different ring to it. As though they're not deliberately ignoring this evidence. Instead, it's though it's escaping their attention. They can't see it. They don't see it. They're blind to it, in a sense. I think this seems to better communicate Peter's attempt in verses 5 to 7 as he's highlighting these three evidences of God's intervention that scoffers overlooked in this claim that all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. See, creation itself reveals the first contradiction. Did you catch that in verse 5? He says quickly, and the earth was formed, he says, uh, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God. So they say God has not intervened since creation. The false teachers do. Peter says, fine, let's start with creation because that's where you began. Let's start at the beginning of a very good place to begin. Have you read how God intervened to create all things by the power of his word in Genesis 1? Do you remember that? It's in the Bible. Good place to start. Genesis 1, 1 to 3, you'll remember there where we are told, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was what? Good. He spoke creation into being, and and it was a good thing that he made. And over six days, God creates all things, culminating in the creation of Adam and Eve as the pinnacle of his good creation. See, the water language, I know it looks strange in this text, but it's not claiming that water is the basic element of life like uh, others, like Thales of Miletus did. That's not what he's saying. It looks like that, but but that's not what's happening. 
In fact, I think commentator Richard Bauckham is, is helpful here. He, he argues that the phrase out of water here is actually according with the kind of imagery that Genesis would have been written in and also the kind of imagery that, that Peter would have been familiar with. And it's the kind of image that you would find in Near Eastern myth that the physical heavens and earth emerged out of a primeval ocean. And God pushed back the waters of the, the chaos above the firmament and beneath the surrounding earth. So the second phrase, through the water, it's loosely imaging the way that God removed the waters and bringing forth creation by the power of His Word. See, creation began with God initiating and intervening to create by the power of His Word. That's how the whole thing started. God's intervention. God acting in time and space and in creation. Now, there may also be a sense in which Peter here is hinting at God's continual power in creation, sustaining the waters being held back in verse 5, because notice the second evidence he gives there. He gives in, in verse, uh, he goes on to give in verse 6 the second evidence that God intervened again with water, sending the flood of Genesis 6 to 9. Now, Peter just said that God created the word, the world by his word and by means of water. If you'll notice, in parallel fashion here, it's by God's word and by means of water that he later destroyed the world. Now here again, Peter is picking up on the, the Noah story that he mentioned in chapter 2. It happens in Genesis 6-9. to And you'll remember there that God looked down and saw that every intention of the thoughts of the hearts of men was only evil continually. Not a pure mind, right? So God spoke again, and the waters they lose are flooded, the earth wiping away all of them. And only Noah and his family, eight souls, survived. Now the idea here is that God brought about what one author calls a cosmic catastrophe. It was a, a catastrophe of cosmic proportions. And he did this to judge sinful humanity, which affected and changed heaven and earth in Noah's day. See, the, the world perished, but Noah and the world was not annihilated. There were survivors in this perishing. Yet, there seems to be substantial difference in the way the heavens and the earth are described before Genesis 6 to 9 and after. In fact, as you read Genesis 7 to 11, you'll notice that during the flood, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. The earth looked like a different place in that day, it seems like. And God's judgment there actually changed heaven and earth. He gave us a rainbow in the sky, which literally is him putting down his war bow as a promise that he would never destroy us by flood again. He would never use water in that way. See, I think here we just need to be reminded what Peter's trying to remind his people. If you read the Bible, we will see that our, our minds, our perspective is so small, limited, so infinite compared to our transcendent, eternal, all-seeing God. We need to regularly in our, our infant small places, our finite small places in life, be reminded, reminded of the grandeur of God and what he's doing, not just in history, but in redemptive history. Evidence 3, in verse 7, God says he will intervene with fire in the heavens and the earth. Now verse 7 is saying, it says this, 
But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So don't miss this imagery. God's word is intervening and active in a way that scoffers they don't see. And just as the prophets and Jesus himself testified, God preserves heaven and earth and sustains them even with an eye to them being stored up for fire. Did you catch that? This whole, this whole world, heavens and earth, he's sustaining it, but he knows there's coming a day where it's going to be purged with fire. This storing up word that he uses here in verse 7 is fascinating. It, it's the same language that Jesus uses in Matthew six nineteen to 20, where he tells believers, his disciples, do not store up your treasures on earth, right? They'll be destroyed, but store them up in heaven. Here we find that storing up means keeping something safe, something valuable or treasured. And here it's the heavens and the earth which are being guarded until the day of judgment, which will result in the destruction of the ungodly. A commentator, Tom Schreiner, speaking of this, says the reference to fire in this text is surprising since nowhere else are we told that the world will be destroyed by fire. Now, there's a lot of fire imagery in the Bible. A lot of judgment by fire. Uh, we know that it's spoken of consistently throughout the Bible. And we do see a litany of texts that speak of God's fiery judgment on sinful humanity. Look at Deuteronomy 32.22 or Isaiah 66.15-16 or Malachi 4.1. If you look at Malachi 4.1, it says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch." Some say Peter developed a fiery judgment from teaching based on the Stoics of his day. Others point to post-biblical writers. Or he simply developed it from the fiery judgments of the Old Testament that we just read. But I take it more likely that he received it from Jesus himself. Don't, don't forget the day of Jesus' return, the day of judgment. Don't forget it. It's easy to forget it. You might have already forgot it, but don't forget it. Now, how do you forget the coming of a, a cosmic catastrophe, you ask? It's actually pretty simple. I myself am pretty good at it. Just get me started talking about basketball. Basketball is not bad, but quickly I tend to forget the things that are most important. I start to get worried about, is my team going to win the next game? How did they not win more successfully the last game they played? Are they going to get that next trophy? Does it really matter when Jesus is coming back? You know, it's easier than you think without reminders to forget that day. We are finite, forgetful beings, not to mention that we are living in a world that is corrupt, not to mention that we still fight sin. Easy to forget the most important things. We grow tired. Sometimes when we get exhausted, it is harder to be reminded of the fact that Jesus is coming back so that every moment matters. Doesn't this just cause you to want to share Christ with others, Christian? I mean, when I, I read this this week, I was just like, kind of undone. There's nowhere to go to escape. I have friends that I love who do not love Jesus. I've got family who 
might not love Jesus, don't love Jesus, some do love Jesus. And as I'm reading this, I'm just reminded of the weight of what's coming. So easy to forget. So easy to, to lose that evangelistic edge because we've forgotten what's coming. The other day, one of my sons was saying, makes me sad, Dad, when there's someone that's really nice that I know doesn't love Jesus. Why? Because he knows what's coming. Of course, it would make us sad, it should make us sad, if we even consider the terror that awaits our enemies on the face of the coming fire. I mean, that's given, but, but I, I know what he means. When our minds are, are stirred about the coming fire, it ought to cause us in our hearts to yearn to see those around us saved. Right? Like, if you're a non-Christian here, I just want you to know, like, there's nothing that excites us about that coming day for those who do not know Jesus. The justice is good. It's glorious. It's fierce. It's terrifying. And that would lead me to my third point for you who are a non-Christian. You know, the Bible speaks much of the fire of God's judgment on the last day. In fact, Isaiah 2 has this terrifying image of on that last day, the fearful presence of the Lord coming and the, the splendor of His majesty arising on earth on this last day, where all of those who were so proud in His absence, His apparent absent, though He saw everything going on, is now visible. He allows them to see His presence. And as He pulls back the curtain and they see Him, they were so proud, but now they are terrified. They're running for their lives. And in that moment, when they thought nothing would change, they see that everything is about to change, and they flee. It says they seek to hide from Him in caves and holes in the ground, but there's nowhere that they can flee from His presence. See, those who die outside of faith in Christ, they face the fire. They face hell when they die. They face the lake of fire on the last day when Christ restores all things. It's there that they're going to experience those who are not in Christ. And if that's you, this would be you, the eternal wrath of God in increasing measure. It's not just like you're punished and done. It's not like he just annihilates you and it's over. It is an eternal consequence and wrath of God being met on those who did not look to him. But here's the good news today. There is very good news, news that is only to be found in God's word. And that's this. There is a rock that you can hide under. There's a rock. The rock is Jesus. Jesus Christ. He is the one that you can run to and hide yourself in. You are not obedient enough to shade yourself and save you from the presence of God on the last day. Your goodness is not good enough. None of our goodness, all of our collective goodness is not good enough to meet God's standards. God doesn't grade on a curve. God is not going to on the last day say, well, man, I didn't see you standing next to Hitler, so you're fine. God says, all of you, Altogether are unrighteous. None of you are pure of heart in the way that you ought to be. Here's the beauty of Christ. Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. He is our greatest fear, but He's also our greatest hope. He is the one, the rock, who came to die in your place on the cross for your sins. He lived a perfectly righteous life and then happily, sorrowfully, went to the cross for you to take on the punishment that you deserved so that you might be forgiven by God. He was forsaken so that you don't have to be, so that when God comes, you might be rescued from the incredible, eternal, the inescapable wrath of God. He did that in Christ. 
Christ did that for you who believe. When you put your faith in him, when you decide that my way of life is not working, it's not good enough to get me to the Father, then put your faith in Christ, turn from sin, and you will be forgiven. You will be one of those who are beloved by God. One of those who will be saved from the wrath of God to the love of the Father as not an enemy, but as a son. That's what happens in Christ. He is the rock that we hide under on that last day. He is the rock that they should have been running to in Isaiah 2, the Messiah that was to come. That's why Colossians 3, 3 3-4 tells us this. He says, All those who have repented and believed the gospel and continue believing, he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Are you hidden with Christ in God today? Are you ready for the last day? He is the only place to hide. If you haven't done that, talk to me, talk to another Christian today. We don't want you to leave unprepared for the last day.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and apps. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from the God of Abraham. Last time, we carefully considered Genesis chapter 17, and we ended the study in verse 14. We learned how God told Abraham to be circumcised, and we discussed the meaning of the circumcision, which is that it was a sign of the covenant made between God and Abraham. Today, we'll read starting at verse 15. Here is verse 15 through 18. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. After God changed Abraham's name, he also changed Sarah's name. Sarah is the only female in the Bible whose name was changed by God. There are different opinions about the meaning of the name Sarai. There are some who say Sarai is princess and Sarah is queen. Some say Sarai is one princess and Sarah is multiple princesses. The Jewish rabbis interpret it in the following way. Sarai was Abraham's personal princess, but now she is no longer Abraham's personal princess, but the princess as the mother of many descendants. I believe this interpretation is correct. She went from being Abraham's personal wife to a mother of many nations. As we mentioned last time, Abraham had a son through Hagar 13 years prior. Then God appeared and said Sarah will give Abraham a son. Abraham couldn't believe it. He probably laughed and said to himself, How could I have a child when I am a hundred years old? Even if I could have a child, how could Sarah have a child when she is ninety years old? It doesn't make sense. We don't know if he laughed because he thought there's something even God doesn't know or because God made an unbelievable promise. Abraham did not believe God's word. He thought it wasn't possible. Then he spoke to God in verse 18. It's all right. How can I have another child at this age? It won't work. Instead, please let Ishmael live well before you. Therefore, God appeared to Abraham and said he was God Almighty. God would make the impossible happen. There are many times when God waits until we think something is impossible and then he will do his work. When God divided the Red Sea, he didn't divide it in advance before the people came. He opened the Red Sea when the people were anxious and thought they were at a dead end and would perish. There will be times in our lives when things will seem very difficult. We look all around and can't find a way to get out of the situation. We feel like this when we think there is no solution to the problem. 
It's at this time when God works and shows us He's in control. Through this experience, we trust God more and our faith grows. In 23 years, this experience has come to Abraham once again. Abraham was in disbelief and asked God to let Ishmael live well before God. Abraham didn't believe God's word and therefore he laughed. However, God said in detail that Abraham would have a son through his wife Sarah. Then God told Abraham to walk before him faithfully and be blameless and be circumcised, and then he left off and went up from Abraham. Here is Genesis chapter 17, verses 23 through 25. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham did as God said and was circumcised. According to God's word, If Sarah was going to have a child a year later around this time, then Sarah would have to be pregnant after two to three months. I hope you remember this part since we will cover it next time. Last time, we said we'll learn more about circumcision. We previously mentioned in chapter 14 that when Abraham gave a tenth of everything to Melchizedek, it was not the basis for tithing. Even during the New Testament time, This verse cannot be used as evidence for giving tithe. It's because giving a tenth was a common custom in the Near East at that time. I'm not talking about whether we must tithe or not. I'm saying that we must not talk about Abraham as the basis for giving tithe. If we claim that we must tithe on the basis of Abraham, who already tithed before the law existed, then we should be circumcised just as God commanded now. It's because God commanded circumcision in Moses' law, but before Moses' law was given, God already commanded circumcision. In the age of grace we live in, we are not expected to circumcise our bodies to become God's people. All the people of Abraham and the people born in his household, in other words, all his flesh and blood, and even the slaves bought with money, must be circumcised to come within the promise of Abraham. Therefore, one had to be a Jew to enter into the grace of salvation before Jesus came. People born as Abraham's descendants were naturally Jews, but foreigners had to convert to Judaism. Among the women who appear in the genealogy of Jesus, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were all foreigners. However, there were people who entered the Jewish genealogy by conversion. God's requirement of circumcision was not a requirement of law, but a requirement of promise. Also, the circumcision of the body loses its meaning in the New Testament. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 says, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person who is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit not by the written code. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 speak about circumcision. In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, 
who raised him from the dead. The circumcision we receive was not performed by human hand, but in a spiritual sense, we were circumcised by Christ. We were buried with Christ in baptism, and we were raised with Christ. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15 says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. It's saying that being a new creation in Christ is important. I hope you can remember this point. I hope there's no one who is asking the question, do we need to be circumcised as well? Let's summarize the meaning of circumcision. God didn't tell Abraham to be circumcised as a condition for him to act upon his promise, but circumcision was an indication of Abraham believing in God's promise. God made a promise to Abraham to bless him, to make his name great, to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven, and to give him and his descendants all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. This promise was not based on whether or not Abraham received circumcision. It was not a promise that would be fulfilled only if Abraham walked faithfully before God and was blameless. It was God's unilateral promise to do this. God wanted to do this and Abraham's obedience was not necessary. Regardless of whether Abraham did well or not, whether his descendant Israel did well or not, God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Later on, Abraham made another mistake. Not only that, but Abraham's descendants, Jacob and his sons, and later on northern Israel and southern Judah, all did not live in a right way before God. They made a lot of mistakes and fell into sin. However, it didn't make any influence on God's history of salvation. God still saved them. As mentioned before, Abraham and his descendants were to walk before God and be blameless and receive circumcision as a response to show evidence in believing God's promise. It's so they could live like those who receive God's promise. This applies to each of us and everyone who become God's children through Jesus Christ. We are able to be saved entirely by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It was entirely God's plan and God's will. We are not saved by our act. However, since we have received the promise of salvation, we must now live a holy life as people who have received the promise. We must also walk faithfully before God, and just as God is holy, we must live a holy life. What is holiness? The original meaning of holiness means to be separated and distinguished. Just as God is not of the world, we must also live by being distinguished from the world. The Israelites lived by falling into sin and leaving God and betraying Him because they didn't accept the promise in truth. Therefore, we must remember this. Circumcision is not an indication of salvation, and baptism is not a condition for salvation. We are not saved because we have been baptized. The evidence that we are people who have been saved appears when we live a changed life as a new person and a new creation. We must each think about this truth and examine each of our own lives. Are we proving that we believe in God's promise in our life? Are we proving that we are living a holy life? We must look into this. I'll see you next time. Goodbye.
Just now. 
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.